Let me invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're continuing to walk through Paul's letter uh, to this church. We've been in it, I don't know, forever it seems like, but we've been in it for a long time. We took a quick break to walk through some chapters in the book of John, and now we're back into Ephesians chapter 4. So, this is a great day to celebrate. I'll be honest with you, I could start every single service just like that right there. As we see the Lord bring people into His kingdom and into His church and have the joy of celebrating with them in, uh, in baptism. To see Him grow, I, I continually remember, if you just look at the book of Acts over and over and over again, whether it was through persecution or whether it was through uh, trials or struggles or whether it was the good days, if you will, of the church when they were faithful to sit under the apostles' teaching, to pray, to fellowship, to do the things, the breaking of bread, to do the things that God had called the church to do. The Bible says He added to their members daily. And so I'm thankful for that. And uh, uh, again, just want to congratulate Waylon and his family as we, uh, as we seek now, church, hear me well, okay? This is not the end. This is the beginning. Um, he has made a commitment to our church, but our church has made a commitment to him to invest in his life, to equip him as a saint, to uh, pray for him, to love him, to teach him. And we do that with him. We do that with uh, all of our young people. We do that with each other. In many ways, that's what Ephesians chapter 4 is all about. We're going to get to the, the heart of that more next week than we are this week. But I want to begin looking at Ephesians 4 this morning. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 16. I'm going to focus in on verses 4, about 4 through 10, somewhere in that neighborhood. Let me ask you to stand one more time as we honor the reading of the Word of God from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the winds, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, 
with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the conviction of your word. We thank you for the transforming power of your word. And we thank you most of all for Jesus who died for our sin and rose for our salvation. That we can know you and know you eternally. God, our heart this morning. Open our minds this morning. Bring us to your throne that we may see your awe and your beauty and worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. I know we live in a multi-believing world. I know that we call tolerance the supreme attribute of humanity. We're not to judge anyone. We're not to call anyone on their sin or their decisions or on their lifestyles. But here's the problem. When that bleeds into the church, and beloved, it does bleed into the church, we find ourselves in a very dangerous posture of blending the secular or the worldly ideas with Christian truth. For example, one of the most prominent and most influential television personalities of the last 30 years once stated, one of the mistakes human beings make is believe that there is only one way to live. They said instead there are many paths to what we call God. This individual claims a Christian faith. Just in the last couple of weeks, I won't mention names because politics don't matter in this setting, but in the past week or so, one of the most powerful people in our nation has been refused communion by their church because they embrace and promote practices that the church strictly condemns as sinful. But for you and me, we may not come right out and claim that we are both secular and sacred, but too often, beloved, we, we live like it. We are a Southern Baptist church in cooperation with 47,000 other Southern Baptist churches throughout the nation, 16 million members. But this week, a week ago today, the Southern Baptist Convention released a horrific report about the absolute abysmal handling of sex abuse and sex abuse victims in Southern Baptist entities and Southern Baptist churches. Throughout the course of the week, they've released over 500 pages of documents. And I have read every single page. They are horror stories, except they are real. They are horror stories of pastors and national leaders rejecting victims of sexual abuse and who had instead in many ways supported predators, finding them other churches to serve in without exposing their predatory past. Others who compiled a list of pastors known 
who have been guilty of sexual abuse, who were still engaged in ministry. They built this list over the course of 15 years, and it was just released this past Thursday night with over 700 names on it. It is awful in every sense of the word. It is tragic. And I pray that we as Southern Baptists not only repent, and we better be doing that, but that we repent in a way that leads to real change, that protects the most vulnerable and proclaims that justice is found only in the name of Jesus. Friends, I know our church, especially as we are transitioning, we don't have a formalized abuse policy in place yet. But I can promise you this. If it's reported to me or I discover that there is sex abuse or any kind of abuse that is going on, I guarantee you I will make a report. And I will call us on it. And we will do whatever is necessary to protect the most vulnerable, and you had better do the same thing. We had better do the same thing. I bring this up because the mindset of those implicated leaders was in one way or another to protect the system, to protect the base, to protect the organization. And I'm sorry to say it this way, but I don't know any other way to say it. It's to protect the organization and to hell with those whose lives have been wrecked. We allow our sacred and gospel-driven duty to care about one another, to be put aside so that a secular organization can be protected. That is blending in the most egregious and condemning way that is blending the holy with the wicked to the point of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of us watched the news this week as for the second time in two weeks there's been a mass casualty event. As an 18-year-old kid walked into an elementary school and killed 19 10-year-olds and their teachers. Last week there was an attack on black people in Buffalo, New York that killed 10 people as they bought groceries. <laughs> a day later, a man walked into a church in California, shot six people, killed one, because their Asian nationality didn't meet his Asian, Asian nationality. And here's what's overwhelmingly heartbreaking. As bad as that is, many Christians have responded by defending gun ownership. Now, I completely support the Second Amendment. Absolutely, I'm thankful for our Constitution. I put a uniform on to defend it. I would do it again if they could find one to fit me. But the Bible says to weep with those who weep. And now is not the time to defend man-made rights. It's time to love and care for those who are hurting. At some point, friends, we have to stop making excuses for evil and call it evil. 
Quit trying to cover up and excuse away sexual violence in defense of the system. Church, it is evil. And if we are not diligent, it will be right here as well. The pastor last week in Indiana stood up before his congregation to confess an adulterous relationship that happened 20 plus years ago. Finds out it's 27 years ago. And his church was encouraged by his confession. He was resigning and everything was well until a young lady stood up, walked to the platform and said, it wasn't an adulterous relationship. It started 27 years ago and I was a 16-year-old victim. He can walk in our doors and can walk in here in the, any single one of our parts. The Bible says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The psalmist writes in Psalm 28, verse 3, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors, neighbors while their heart, while evil is in their hearts. Psalm 36, 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The prophet Jeremiah cries out, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you might be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? And Peter tells Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. So why is all of this important, and particularly, why is it important as we come to Ephesians chapter 4? This morning I've titled our message, I mean, remember, the exclusivity of Christianity. The exclusivity of Christianity. And by rejecting the exclusivity of Christ as the only means of life for the Christian and the church, we welcome this wickedness. We welcome this evil into our doors. Let's return again to the text. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. Just hear what the Apostle Paul writes here. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of us all. Who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, and saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might feel all things. I want to walk through this passage with four major thoughts, four major questions. One is, what is Christian exclusivity? The second question is, what hinders exclusivity. The third question is what is exclusive about grace? And the fourth question is why is there only one faith 
in one Jesus. First, let's ask, what is Christian exclusivity? You may have noticed a repeated word in verses 4, 5, and 6. If you missed it, let me read it for you again. There is one body, one spirit. This is, you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. One. The word one is used seven times in these three verses. And yes, I think it is seven times for a reason. While I don't give myself the hidden or mystery meanings in the number of in numbers in the Bible, seven is representative of the number of four completion. And the call to which we are called is fully complete in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. Let's look at each of these briefly. One body. There is one church. This verse speaks to the exclusivity of the church of Jesus Christ. We read, read this verse a few moments ago, but Ephesians chapter 4 verse 16 says that from Christ who is the head, the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Friends, you cannot be a faithful, growing Christian outside of the one body of Christ. You need the church. Now some of you tuned out. So let me repeat that. You cannot be a faithful, growing Christian outside of the one body of Christ. You need the church. As troubled as she is, as in need of repenting as she is, as hard as it sometimes is, we need the church. We are the bride of Christ and Christianity is expressed only in one body. Next, Paul says one spirit. Let me note here that Paul is continuing to build a Trinitarian doctrine that leads to a life submerged in Trinitarian faith. In chapter 1, he spoke of the Trinity in regard to the eternal plan of redemption. Here he says one spirit. Later he's going to say one Lord and then one God and Father. Paul is continuing to refer to us to the full understanding of God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. Here though he says one spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. He is the spirit of unity. He is the spirit of eternal security. Paul says in Ephesians 1.14. We saw when we studied John 16 a few weeks ago that he is the spirit of help. He is the spirit of conviction. 
He is the Spirit of truth. And He is the Spirit that glorifies the Son. There is no other Spirit. And we are filled by Him and sealed in Him the very moment we come to faith. The moment that we are regenerated or born again in Christ through repenting and believing. One Spirit. Paul says next there is one hope. One hope. Paul warned us back in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 that outside of Christ we have no hope. And then he prays in Ephesians 1.18 that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to know the hope to which he has called us. The riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. What is that hope? Paul tells us when he opens his letter to Titus. He says this in verse 1 of Titus, of the book of Titus. Paul, the servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. Our one hope is eternal life in Christ, sealed by the one Holy Spirit and promised by the one God who never lies. That is real hope. Real hope. The expectation of a guaranteed reality to come. It's not wishful thinking. It's real hope. And then Paul says one Lord. This one Lord is Jesus Christ. God's plan for the fullness of time is in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. And in case we're not sure, Paul writes to the church of Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is one Lord. And the whole Bible declares He is Jesus Christ. There is one faith. One faith. The Apostle Jude opens his letter by saying, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. Contend for the true faith of the doctrine of God found in His Word. Hebrews chapter one or 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then Paul writes to the Galatian church in chapter 2, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. One faith is our understanding that there is only one body of truth to embrace. And though we may not see it with our eyes, there is one and only one overwhelming conviction that Jesus Christ is the faithful one and our faith is only in Him. One baptism. 
the baptism we witnessed this morning pictures the one baptism of the Christian into the one body by the one Lord through one faith. Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, Do you not know that those of us who have, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. We go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. Paul says in him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. The one baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ occurs when you hear the word of truth and believe. That one baptism of the Holy Spirit is a baptism of power. Jesus writes, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, he tells us that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It is a baptism of power, but it is also a baptism that unifies the church. It unifies the church. First Corinthians 12 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, both Greek and Jews, slaves and free. One baptism. And finally Paul says, One God and Father of all, who is in all and through all. One God. The greatest proclamation of Christianity and God followers from all of eternity. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 5, There is one God. So we studied from John 17, a few weeks Jesus would pray, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have seen. One. One. The exclusivity of Christianity is that there is one and only one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. So what hinders the exclusivity of Christianity? What hinders that, and that's where I want to move to next. If Christianity is so exclusive, why do we not experience that way? The simplest reason is that we commit idolatry by taking one or several of those ones and adding something to it. There is one body. But when we add to our body our political demands, we compromise the exclusivity of Christianity. The same as if we add our demands to protect some other entity, like a convention. This is the sin of the SBC right now. The organization became more important than the one body. There is one spirit. But when we allow the spirit of the age in our doors, 
We add to what the Holy Spirit has given, especially what He has given to us in the Word of God. We add entertainment to draw crowds and shut out the preaching of the Gospel. We add inclusivity to the point of permitting sin in our doors and shutting out confession of sin and repentance. There is one hope. But when our hope is in the number of seats filled or dollars in the bank or influence in the culture or speaking engagements in the convention, we lose sight of our one hope of eternal life with Christ and in Christ. There is one Lord. But then I want to be Lord. I want to express Christianity according to the individual demands of my heart. When we do this, Christianity is lost. And the exclusive nature of the Lord is dismissed. Beloved, please hear me. We don't make. We do not make Jesus Lord. Only God has that authority. Jesus is Lord, period. We either reject it or submit to it. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one faith. No, beloved, you can't make up your own belief system to fit your whims and your wishes. God not only tells us to believe, He tells us what to believe and how to believe it. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the midst. That's why Paul exhorted Titus, teach sound doctrine. There is one baptism. There is one baptism. Friends, when we are saved, truly saved, we are baptized into the body of Christ and into the Holy Spirit at the time of, the re of our redemption. But so often we seek other baptisms. We want to immerse ourselves in culture. We want to immerse ourselves in consumerism. We want to immerse ourselves in some personal euphoric experience. Or as Paul says in, second, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 2, we seek to immerse ourselves in the course of this world, in the prince of the power of the air, we seek to immerse ourselves in the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We immerse ourselves, we baptize ourselves into the passions of our flesh, and the desires of the body and mind. And when we do, the exclusivity of Christianity is compromised and corrupted. Finally, there is one God. There is one God. And beloved... It ain't you. And it ain't me. There is one God. And that God is pretty clear in Isaiah chapter 48 verse 11. My glory I will not give to another. When we can see the exclusivity of Christianity by idolatry, the power, the effectiveness, and the kingdom work of the church becomes unfruitful. 
And just as a reminder, those of us who pray to one day be true Vine Baptist Church, Jesus teaches us in John 15, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, that becomes unfruitful, he takes away. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Church, dear beloved friends, may we walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which he has called us. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, exclusively for the sake of the name of the one true God. In the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to wrap up quickly with the final two questions this morning. What is exclusive about grace? And why is there only one faith in one Jesus? Grace is exclusive because it only, only comes from Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul the Apostle there is referring to Psalm 68, verse 18, that reads, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among me, and even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. In the context of Psalm 68, those gifts, those gifts include being a father to the fatherless, a protector of the widows. Leading prisoners to prosperity, rains to parched lands, restoration of the languished, provision for the needy, and salvation and deliverance from death. Paul understood Psalm 68 as a messianic hymn, a hymn of worship to the Christ that they didn't even know who he was in Psalm 68. But now we know has come in Jesus of Nazareth, the exclusive source of grace. His sacrificial death is the apex of grace and the apex of gifting to humanity, which leads to one final question. Why is there only faith in only one Jesus? Because the only one Jesus the only one Jesus ascended into the lower regions and ascended above the heavens. There is one Lord and one faith in that one Lord and it is sufficient for the gift of eternal life. And for the exclusive inclusion into the body of Christ, the one body by the one spirit, who gives us one hope and one Lord by one faith and one baptism and the right to be called the children of the one God. Jesus alone died for our sin. Jesus alone rose again 
for eternal life. Jesus alone calls us from that wicked heart we spoke about earlier to follow him. He calls us from the grave. He says, rise up and come forth. Jesus alone calls us to repent and believe. Jesus alone is Savior. And faith in Jesus alone is sufficient for eternal life. With Him. In the heavenly places. And it is that same faith alone that is sufficient for an abundant life of growth and power in Christ while we walk with Him every day in a manner that is worthy of our call. I'm going to close this morning by reading Psalm 50. Psalm 50, it identifies itself as the Psalm of Asaph, which means this is one of the few psalms that King David did not write. But let me invite you to enter into a time of prayer, enter into a time of meditation. Just allow the Word of God to settle on our hearts. As we consider the exclusivity of Christ and the exclusivity of our faith in that one Christ. The psalmist writes in Psalm 50, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, He does not keep silent. Before him is a, devour, a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteous, for God himself is judge. Hear, O oh my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, the, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? Or take my covenant on your lips. For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You set and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like you. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this. Then you who forget God 
lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thank who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Father, this morning, more so than anything else, I pray that every heart here would bear a burden of repentance. That we would repent of the sin of idolatry that robs the exclusivity of Christ. That puts something in place of or adds something to your one body, your one spirit, your one faith. Your one Lord, your one hope, your one baptism, the one God and Father of us all. I would pray, Father, for that spirit of repentance. Whether we are Christians and have been for a long time and we've become complacent in our faith. We've got it in our minds that I don't need church. Even though your word clearly says there's one body. When we desire to seek after the spirits of this world and even be submerged, baptized in them. Father, I would pray that you would lead us to repentance, that we would again align ourselves, that our offering would be one of thanksgiving as the psalmist writes, and we can find your salvation and see your face. I pray for our church. I pray for our churches. I pray for our convention. That the sin that has been brought before our eyes, that we would repent and we would repent in a way that Father would bring about God-honoring, God-glorifying community and change. That the advancement of your gospel and the proclamation of your kingdom would never be hindered. Father, I pray for the one who may be here today who witnessed baptism is wailing, professed his faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray for the one who's here today who may not know you, who may not recognize that you died for their sin and rose for their salvation. The one who has not come to a place of repentance and belief. The Father, today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they hear you draw them and call them to you. That they would respond in that repentance and embrace you by faith. I pray for the one, maybe who is here, who was saved at some point in their life, but has yet to experience believer's baptism. I pray that you would help us understand the importance of that, the value of that, the importance of that in our in our discipleship, in our sanctification, and in our in our church membership and communion among the saints. And that, Father, today we could begin those conversations to see people either come to you or come to you through baptism and the ordinance that you have given us in that. Father, we do offer you a praise. We do offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You are God and God alone. You are supreme and you are exclusive. And may we ever stand 
in awe of your presence. May we never forsake our worship of you. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name.